and welcome to Secondhand Stories, where we invite you to slow down and listen up. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. We're changing things up again this week and only bringing you one story. You just never know what's coming next from us over here at Secondhand Stories. We'll try to get back to normal next time, but no promises. You'll just have to stay tuned. Good way to do that would be hitting that subscribe button on iTunes. Maybe drop us a review to let us know how we're doing. We're so thankful to you, our listeners, and our writers. The show really couldn't happen without you. Okay, now let's get to our story. I'm going to read to you Tanya Perkins's The Dry Season, which, to me, builds like a crescendo to quite a thought-provoking finale. Tanya Perkins's fiction and poetry has appeared in numerous journals, including Big Muddy, Emmers, Certain Circuits, Chamber 4, and the Wilderness House Literary Review. An MFA candidate at Murray State University, she teaches writing at a small college in eastern Indiana, where she lives with her husband, daughter, and assorted critters. The Dry Season by Tanya Perkins When Nancy backs over the dog, the car goes thunk, and there is a yelp from somewhere behind her. Now it's on its side, poor thing, panting and whining, not getting up. Her first thought is to fix it, as if it were a broken zipper or snarled shoelace, like when Marie and Tom were young. She bends over the dog. No blood, but when she touches its hindquarters, it yips and bites air in the direction of her hand. Inside Marie's house, she heats up coffee in the microwave. She carries the coffee outside, along with the dog's water bowl. Its eyes are closed, its breathing even, like it is sleeping. The dog is Lulu, a fat basset hound that looks and acts much older than it is all gnarled paws, fat folds, and repellent, drippy eyes. Marie got it as a puppy from Nancy's neighbors back in Muncie on one of her visits, before she'd convinced Nancy to move south to live with her and Dexter. Oh, dull, harmless Dexter. How does he manage living with a jackhammer like Marie? She plans to ask him one day, when Marie is out power walking. Nancy hadn't thought a puppy was a good idea, well, with all the hours they worked, but Marie had brushed her aside. Now guess who walks it, picks up its waist, fills its bowl, and dispenses noontime allergy meds? Poor beggar, Nancy whispers. She sets the bowl by its head, and the dog sniffs at it without raising its head. The street hums vacantly. Stucco houses on stony lots, cacti, skeletal palms springing out of red pumice. Everyone at work to pay for all that bareness. Well, not quite. She's seen merry maids a few times, and an old codger walking a Yorkie. She'd been tempted to talk to him, find out what it was like for someone else her age to be shipwrecked amidst such silent, gaudy splendor. Then the Yorkie had gone number two, and the old man was barely able to bend and gathered into a baggie, and she thought, how awkward, how humiliating. A dented white van moves slowly down the street, cruising. A subcontractor making deliveries, or a cleaning service, maybe. The hand of God, she thinks. A rescuer. She steps onto the street and waves her arms. The van stops. An elderly man rolls down the window as she approaches. Now she's out of breath. Sorry, but I hit my daughter's dog and it's still alive. 
Do you think maybe... And here she stops, because what is it exactly that she expects this stranger to do? Hit it with my car, she adds lamely. The man stares at her, then wipes a bony finger across one eye. His hair is a gray grizzle jutting up from his forehead, which is sprinkled with tiny freckles. He cranes around her to the driveway, where Lulu is now trying to lap water from the bowl. You call a vet? No, they don't make house calls, do they? There are other people in the van, she realizes, boys or teenagers, sitting on the bare floor. The man looks into the rearview mirror. You guys know anything about dogs? Bullet in its ear, put it out of its misery, a voice from the back says, and there is laughter. Oh, come on, man, we gotta get going, someone else says. But the old man gets out. He is tall, in dull green work clothes, and limps just a little. He crouches down beside Lulu. His eyes flicker up at the house. I like dogs. I don't know. Maybe we could lift it into a box or something? You got a box? There is a dog carrier, she remembers, in the garage. She finds it behind Dexter's bike that he never rode under folded lawn chairs. Outside, the man is leaning into the van, talking with the others. Okay, he says. Tell you what. We'll take the dog to the vet for you. Two lanky teenagers emerge from the van. Neither look at her. The old man takes the carrier from her, but when they approach Lulu, she snarls. Maybe a towel over her head? The old man says. Nancy returns with one of Marie's snowy white bath towels, the ones reserved for guests. They wrap it around the dog's head, who yips pitifully when they lift her into the carrier. You got money? Says the old man. We got to pay the vet. Nancy brings out her purse from the back seat of the car. There's exactly 53 in cash in her wallet. Probably not enough, he says. You got a card? She hands over her visa, a small swell of panic rising inside her. She should not do this, but there is a nightmarish sense of events out of control that invisible winds are corralling her. Someone else's hands are handing it to the old man with lightly dabbed freckles. I'll come with you, she says, but the old man shakes his head. No seats, no seatbelts. Don't matter to youngsters, but you'd get bumped around. No padding. She watches the van rumble off, realizing too late that she doesn't know their names, license, nothing. Dread forms behind her diaphragm, making breathing hard. She should follow them in her own car, but her arms shake, a delayed reaction. When she opens the car door, she drops the keys, a sign that things have moved out of her control, taken on their own momentum. Marie, oh Marie. She will be furious when she finds out. She will be beside herself. For a second time that morning, she backs out of the driveway. A loud pop jolts her, but it is only the dog's plastic water bowl she's backed over. The sight of shards splayed out on the concrete terrifies, and yet, at the same time, is oddly cathartic, like vomiting or screaming into a pillow. She merges shakily onto the parkway. 
Trucks and SUVs loom up in the rear windshield before lofting past, jolting her Corolla in their wake. She clings to the steering wheel. When Marie was eight and Tom was ten, they came home with a mutt, a little smaller than medium-sized, white with brown and tan patches, ears that stood up at attention. Some terrier, maybe a poodle and something else. A real Heinz 57, Dick had said. Did anyone even know that phrase anymore? It was a stray, for sure, thin and bedraggled. Yet it bounced around the house, running in delighted circles before squatting beside a kitchen stool. Nancy sees the dog tethered in the backyard, dozing in the shade, remembers giving it a bath and combing its wiry coat, warm, stinky tongue on her cheek. Tom had snuck it into his bed one evening, and she left it there, curled up under the blankets with him. She flounders for a name for the mutt and comes up empty-handed. DeShane Price slides past security, easing toward the sliding doors, three sets of 18K gold hoops in one pocket, Gucci watch, costume quality, but still, in the other. He got the security tags off in the changing room, using the YouTube trick, but made the mistake of catching the eye of the menswear clerk. Still, DeShane knows how to triangulate the line of vision in the angle of the doors putting a rack of early order overcoats between himself and the clerk and disappearing, smooth as the silk lining of the Kanye West jacket he picked up last week. But he still needs to put a little distance between himself and this particular Nordstrom, so, whistle smooth, he slides into the passenger seat of a red Corolla parked at the curb. First thing is the succulent off-gas of new car upholstery. Second thing, an old white lady with that getting ready to scream stare, crazy-eyed like some catfish his uncle dragged up from the green creek behind his grandma's house. But he smiles his sweetheart smile, a little shy, chin-lowered, sheepish. He makes himself feel sheepish, a little embarrassed because that's how you convince a tough audience. And this old lady, she's a tough audience. And yeah, he knows what sheepish means. He's beautiful, not stupid. Shows her his palms, uses his sugarcane voice. Sorry, ma'am, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to scare you or intrude, but there's some guys after me and I didn't know what to do, you know? He lowers his voice, as if they might be overheard. Really bad guys. She sucks this in, blinks. Oh, gangs? He nods. If you could help me, maybe just take me, I don't know, even to the other side of the parking lot? Her head sinks lower into her shoulders, as if she's a Muppet from that show his mom used to make him watch. You have any idea what kind of day I've had already? Her eyes are wet, sticky looking. I just want to do what's right, ma'am. He sniffs loudly, drags his hand under his nose. The old lady shoves a box of tissue at him and he feels the car surge ahead, round the corner, away from the front of the store, where a security guard is now speaking into his walkie-talkie. Both in trouble, I guess, she says. You know what I just did? I did Lulu in. Then I lost her. The car snakes around the edge of the parking lot. DeShane's eyes drift to her purse, wedged in between the seats. Her hands are tightly clenched on the wheel, but he imagines a pink manicure. What's your name? She asks abruptly. 
Deshane, Jacob. I go by Jake. Dunt someone in? He eyes her cautiously. What I really need are my glasses. She rummages through her purse and comes up with a pair of sunglasses that she slides on, narrowly missing sideswiping a beige pickup. So what's your trouble, ma'am? A plan is sprouting up from the shiny yellow wallet he sees peeping out of her purse. The newness of the car, the bright polish on her spindly fingers. Money. I've just got to search at every damn vet clinic until I find her. Twins of himself reflect in the shiny bug-like circles of her sunglasses. So, who'd you do in again? Tell you what, you busy? I'll pay you $20 to help me get to whatever animal hospitals, plus bus money to get home. He let his face relax into a meek smile. Sure, sure. Wow, that's really nice of you. 20 I mean, wow. Inside, he howls at how delusional the old hoe is, when he can swipe 200 500 worth of shit in less than an hour at any Nordstrom's. He'd started lifting five years ago, ended up in juvie a couple times until he got good. Now he supplies an Encanto Park street vendor catering to the tourist crowd. Still, she's good for more than a 20. He Googles animal hospitals on his phone. Okay, ma'am, the Palo Vista Animal Hospital is five blocks away. Just go out the main entrance and turn right. I'll direct you, okay? When DeShane was in middle school, he took up drama. Up till then, TV had been an opaque world, but now gears and levers were revealed. Astounding that actors created their effects through precision and effort and practice, through will and conscious decisions. The top of his head lifted off an inch or two. The teacher set them in pairs to act out a scene from The Ant and the Grasshopper. Wings unsheathed from under DeShane's bony shoulder blades. He stayed in character until his social studies teacher put him in the hall. It was like uncovering a part of himself that he'd known about, but not known about, which made no sense except that he got better every day. And since then, he's put his natural skill to use more times than he could count. Like now, for instance. You don't have to come in, says the old lady. She parks at a weird angle in front of the vet clinic. But his shirt is already clinging to his skin all the way down. He can feel sweat dripping from the backs of his knees. It's okay, he says. You're a good kid, she says. But all Augusto disappears inside the monkey house chill of the clinic. We're looking for a lost dog, DeShane says to the receptionist, smiling his prettiest, letting her see his white teeth, but just for a moment or two. It's a... Uh, what is it? He turns to the old lady, who blows her nose vigorously into a limp tissue. But the receptionist is staring at DeShane in the lit-up way he's come to expect. He leans in close, trying not to look at the pill bottles arrayed in front of her. My grandma's really upset. She thinks someone stole her dog. Closer a lie to the truth, the easier to convince. There's probably a cash register somewhere in the vicinity. And of course, pharmaceuticals. This is something he has not considered. The old lady nudges him. Lulu, fat basset hound. She would have been brought in by an older Negro gentleman, and maybe, I don't know, another person, his son maybe, her nephew? DeShane shakes his head just a little at the receptionist, as if they are the only two in the room, and mouths, she's old, and the girl giggles. 
He leans further over the counter, his voice all velvety, like a rabbit's foot. Basset Hound, name of Lulu. So what's your name? Brittany, she blushes. I don't think anyone's brought in a Basset, but I'll check. As she disappears down the hall, DeShane scoops up three pill bottles. When he materializes beside her in the front passenger seat, Nancy is at first afraid, and then astonished. The fact is, she's unsure he is a he. From some angles, the two thick eyelashes and curve of cheekbones and long sweep of neck is that of a young woman, but from others, manly, like a hologram that shifts from one image to another seamlessly. So there is as great a pleasure in choosing between versions as in enjoying either single version. She finds herself wanting to hold these contradictory images simultaneously, without having to choose. She wants to dip herself into the perfect, pale mocha skin, an admission which she allows herself, since she is 75. Sexual desire was a cargo she dropped long ago, and not even the memory of it was missed anymore. Instead, his presence stretches up other memories, random, decontextualized, snapshots fallen from a water-damaged album. She always told her kids that if you did wrong, you did right. That makes no sense, Marie had said when she was, what, seven? That's like two wrongs make a right. They are on their way to Indiana Dunes, where they went for a week every August. The old aphorism, if you did wrong, you did right, was forever linked to the heat of the vinyl car seat, the jammy motor oil smell their 1965 Rambler got in the sun. She wore pedal pushers in a gingham skirt knotted at the waist. Dick's hand rested on her inner thigh, kids too small to see over the top of the bench seat. Nope, Dick said. It means if you do something to hurt someone, you go make it better. So you don't have to say sorry? Tom asked. Sharp for five. Still sharp now at forty-five. Or so she hears. You still say sorry, she said, turning to look over the seat at him. But then you go to work and make amends. Make it right. That was the lesson drilled into their downy little heads. Do right, go right, make it right. The moral imperative. The virtuous absolute. Marie turned it into an appetite for righteous indignation, monopolizing bully pulpits, swelling into a concerned daughter whose duty was to convince her mother to sell her mortgage-free bungalow in lush green moochie and move to Scottsdale, where she could pay $700 a month for a lightly padded suite in Marie's walkout basement. Just to help out, Marie put it. Help make ends meet. That was the other phrase. Or Tom, sweet, gentle Tom, her eye apple who disappeared after college. A phone call now and then. Opioids, Marie told her. He'd fallen on bad times and tried to go right, a Sisyphean task that he'd simply crumbled under. If she lets herself think about it, something deep within her starts to disintegrate, like a wall holding back vast swells, and she must stop immediately, before it is too late. She still can't think of the name of the Heinz 57 mutt, or its fate. Instead, she turns to the vacations at Indiana Dunes, the cool green stink of the water, tufts of razor grass, Liquid soft sand studded with driftwood. Bright plastic confetti. Have you ever seen the ocean? She asks Jake. After a fruitless tour of six different animal hospitals, 
They lunch at a sub shop. She still has her debit card and buys two vegetarian subs, even though she suspects he'd prefer Italian meatball. But when she asks, he says, whatever you're having, and she is instantly on her guard. Jake opens up the bun and scrapes off all the shredded lettuce, tomato, and green pepper rings. Then he rearranged the cheese slices. Nah, my mom, she doesn't have the money to go anywhere. That's why I'm looking for a job. Of course, it's not the ocean, but it had looked like the ocean, Lake Michigan, sloshing over the horizon. He wants to know about the dog, and she tells him. And then I panicked and let this old man in a dented white van take her away. To a vet clinic, I thought. That's what I gave him the money for, anyway. Why was the dog loose, anyway? He drains his coke and sat back in the booth. It's all about them and their careers, Nancy says, her mouth full. They're just too damn busy to pay attention to what's going on around them. So let me understand. You back over the dog, and then you hand it over to some stranger along with your visa and your cash. And he never got his name or nothing? You see, this is what comes from children being too controlling of their parents. Think they're doing the right thing by trying to be the parents themselves. You're a nice boy. I'd like to help you out. Pay you for your time. She has no idea why she adds this. When she's figured out why he's there. Why he's been with her all morning. Maybe she's trying to signal to him that she's onto his gig. You call your bank? Cancel your card? This is a good idea. To do this, though, is to admit to other adults that she's been duped. The act will set a seal on her stupidity, her gullibility, will enshrine it as proof of what Marie has been implying all along, with her insistence that Nancy move in with her, that she keep occupied taking care of the dog, that she give up driving, that she is no longer an adult. The boy has his phone out. What's your bank? She picks up her sub and takes a big bite, chews sloppily, with her mouth open. He sits up straighter. Oh, come on, they'll clean you out. What, you think I'm going to steal from you? Jesus, I'm just trying to help. So she tells him, and a moment later, he's handing her his cell phone, warm from his touch, slightly sticky from its black silicone sleeve. It's bigger than hers and heavier, like a weapon. She takes it carefully. Feels like it might go off in her hand. But she hears a friendly female voice and tells the story, and to her immense relief, the voice is sympathetic and reassuring. The account is frozen until she goes in and unfreezes it in person. Did she make a purchase at Steve's Auto Body an hour ago for $1,634? Oh crap, she says. They used it. DeShane asks, What did the old dude look like again? When she describes the old man in the van, he slaps the table with his open hand and laughs. No shit, I know that guy. He lives down the street from us. Real tall, likes to wear green work clothes, right? Oh, he's such a dickwad. You know what he did? He stole groceries out of my ma's car. He just stopped his van and loaded up while she was carrying them in. Total whack job. Nancy starts crying, quietly. The only paper napkin is already greasy from wiping her mouth, but she finds a clean corner and dabs her eyes. Things are suddenly too close. The world shrink-wrapped around her. She's aware of the boy shifting in his seat uncomfortably, muttering, oh fuck, under his breath. 
Aware, too, that they are the focal point of attention, the beautiful black girl boy and the old white woman overdue for a cut in color. Marie has been promising to take her to the salon, but hasn't had time. It's okay, she says between small heaves. I'll be okay. Sometimes I just want to lie down and die already. Aw, don't say that. My ma says something. You want to hear it? This, too, shall pass. He moves restlessly and tries again. Come on, you're set up. You're a rich white lady, got money, new car. You got nothing to worry about. She looks at him sharply, but he isn't trying to be funny or sarcastic, and she starts to feel slightly hypnotized, floating toward his beauty. He leans back in the booth, staring at her with lucite eyes. He slides his unused napkin toward her, and she blows her nose, hard. Well, thank you. But it doesn't work that way. You know that, right? Well, we don't have to worry about stuff. I mean, that's all past, right? Like what stuff do I not have to worry about? She wipes her eyes one more time. Dating and shit, making money, trying to find a job, getting respect. Or like, how to act, what you're supposed to do, that kind of shit. I mean, you know how you're supposed to be around people, your own kind of people. Well, if I knew what I was supposed to do, I wouldn't be in this mess. What do you say to that? That's not what I mean. I mean, who the fuck knows what to do when you ghost the dog? I mean, I sure as fuck wouldn't know what to do. I'd be like, running around with my hands in the air. No shit. Nancy puts both hands over her face. I'm not making fun of you. I'm serious. She sighs. You know, I've spent my whole life trying to do the right thing, teach my kids to do the right thing, and then I end up doing something so goddamn stupid, and it's like, it's all for nothing. Them, they've just turned out like, like, oh, I don't know how to say this, like morons. She looks around as if Marie or Tom might be in the next booth. I mean, not stupid, not at all. Marie's an RN, and Tom got an engineering degree, but now he's off doing heroin or something, and Marie just wants to be bossy. You know they took my car keys away from me? Told me I wasn't up to driving anymore? Guess they were right. Guess I'm a moron too. Just a month after she'd driven all the way from Muncie to Phoenix, Marie sat her down and said in her patient voice, Now, Mom, traffic's so bad. We'll drive you wherever you want to go. And dull, dull Dexter, in his unbearably dull voice, It's what Dick would have wanted and gently palmed her keys. Only the dummy, he dropped them into the green ceramic bowl in the front hall, where they kept all their keys. Now DeShane says, You're not supposed to be driving? You think I'm a moron? You know, I can drive us, if you like. I have my license. She looks him in the eye. You're no better than they are. He smiles, an idea forming. Want to go find that bastard? Maybe get your dog back? He's already on his feet, pulling out his hand to her. You just hold on. Hear me out. You're going to love this. Okay, so he'd had a nice solid plan that began with him helping the old lady get to a few vet clinics, and ended with him convincing her to go to her bank and withdraw the rest of her cash in person. He was going to tell her how his grandmother had her identity stolen, 
house painters, he would say. Those dudes in the messy whites lifted a book of checks and wiped out her Snapple. And the bank told her they'd freeze her account, but the bastards cashed a bunch of little checks at a string of payday loan places anyway. Can't trust the banks, can't trust anybody but yourself. The plan was to say this last line center stage, turning his perfect profile to her, chin lowered, voice trembling. Quiet, silky. And she would have cash, lots of cash, of which he would relieve her, quietly again. Everything he did was quiet. She'd have no idea. Maybe he'd give her one of the sets of gold earrings that jostled in his pocket. But then she started telling her sorry-ass story, and crying, and shrinking even further into the vinyl booth, so that he is genuinely fearful of her sliding onto the floor altogether, disintegrating into a little hill of gray dust. And for the first time in his life, he's not obliged to do anything but just listen. Something else is playing out. Something larger and more solid. More resilient than even his best plan. It is throwing a shadow over them both. Turn here, he says. West Ballard Road is all tract housing from the 50s and 60s. Tidy, decrepit little boxes that were every GI's wet dream. Punctuated by project housing from the 70s. Brick monoliths surrounded by dimpled parking lots. No money to replace thirsty lawns with decorative red rock, so most of them had turned to yellow mats, interspersed with gangly yuccas, mesquite, and creosote bush. They drive to the end of the road and into the parking lot of a gaunt apartment block. Round back, DeShane says. Keep going. They leave pavement and crawl slowly across gravel, approaching train tracks. When Nancy stops, DeShane hops out and begins picking up stones, from golf ball to fist-sized. What in the name of Jesus, Pete, are you doing? She says. Her cell phone rings, and she sees that it is Marie. Of course, Marie would be home by now and wondering where Lulu is. She doesn't answer, but something inside lurches a little. Rationally, she wants to gun the engine, pull back onto Highway 10, and drive away from the achy sun until she finds somewhere green, damp, cheap. This, she understands, is now in the realm of impossibility. This, she understands, is what it means to be trapped. He grins. You'll thank me later. He directs her back through the neighborhood and down a narrow street where Nancy slows even further to avoid sideswiping cars parked on both sides of the road. Now they are barely crawling. That's my house, DeShane says, as they pass a white bungalow with a narrow walkway lined with perky red plastic flowers. Somebody's got a green thumb, she says, but it is lost on him. Further on, they park in front of a darkened side split with a cement front yard fenced in chicken wire. The shades are drawn, and there are no cars in the driveway. No bikes or shoes or ornaments. No barbecue. Nothing whatsoever. Not even trash bins. It is as if the place has been lowered from the sky onto scorched earth. An enormous picture window gazes blindly out at the street, its worn drapes watermarked in the shape of a contorted hand rippling across the dirty glass. Who lives here? Mr. Nobody, I think, she says. Mr. Nobody, yep, says DeShane. That's the guy who stole your dog and took off with your cash and card. Well, I don't see the van. What was your plan? Knock on the door and ask for it all back? It was a pretty good plan, come to think of it. 
They are the last two people you'd expect to see together. Throw the enemy off guard. Confuse the bejesus out of him. Well, yeah, at least ask. Then, depending on what he says, we move on to step two. She surveys the yard in front of the house again. And you're sure he lives here? Lights are on, but nobody's home. Looks abandoned. She doesn't ask about step two. It's not, he says. His grandkids are always riding their broke-down bikes up and down the street, like to get killed. Her knock on the front door is ineffectual, swallowed up by the silent, solid nothingness emanating from the house, as if it were an object of infinite density. She spies a doorbell and presses it once, twice, but hears nothing. From the car, Deshane watches, gives her a little wave. Then the door opens, and there he is. The old man with the high, grizzled hair and freckled forehead, the same dusty green work clothes. He braces himself with one long arm against the doorframe and blinks at her confusedly. You took my dog this morning, she says. Amazingly, she finds herself shaking her fist in the most singularly theatrical gesture of her life. He charged 1600 bucks at a body shop. Where's the dog? She has never shaken a fist before but it seems perfectly natural, because something is building inside her, and now she finds she would like to swing her fist at him, punch him in the face. A flicker of fear passes over the man's face, and he turns and disappears. A moment later, he hauls the dog carrier out the door, swinging it toward her and setting it on the top step. He slams the door shut. Nancy kneels and opens the carrier door. Marie's white guest towel hides an unmoving hump. Without even reaching in or stroking the mound of slick, soft fur, she knows that Lulu is dead, her limbs already stiff, motley paws rubbery. In the dense heat, a small stench rises to her face. She pounds again on the old man's door, as hard as she can, and is vaguely aware of yelling, but later will be unable to remember what the exact words are. She turns back to the car, but Deshane is already walking toward her, cradling three of the stones he gathered. He positions himself squarely in front of the house, in front of the enormous picture window, hefts one stone in his right hand, and throws it, his arm a mirage of motion, his body twisting. The stone lobs through the thick air and hits the picture window directly in its center and falls to the ground. Nothing. He stares at her, his gold eyes round and his mouth open, genuinely surprised, and then throws a second stone this time with even more force, shoving forward with his left hip, his arm arcing up and around like a giant slingshot, his body lunging forward. His face is savage, bone and skin, glistening light brown, the length of his neck, the bony smooth chest that she can see as his torso pitches forward and his t-shirt gapes loosely. The second stone hits near where the first one hit, and this time there is a crack in the glass. In the fierce, wilting heat, he turns toward her and gives her the third stone, he grins and repeats the same words. You're going to love this. But she is a coward, unable to breathe as if her lungs were coated with glycerin. Sweat scoots down her spine, the backs of her knees. The old man, he's inside there dialing the police, she is sure. Yet she cannot resist the boy's hypnotic beauty, the warped justice of the breakage. If it were not for him, she would drive away. But there it is, her unflagging need for approval and he's giving it to her, 
along with the oblong, metaphoric rock that he presses into her hand. She sizes up the window and raises her right arm, Bersitis pain shooting down like a bolt of ice, and lets the stone fly so hard that she almost knocks herself off balance. The stone smacks the glass just above the crack, and it is enough. The lower left portion of the window shatters in a splendid, criminal noise. Now the old man is at the doorway, shouting at them, cell phone in one hand, but Deshane has more rocks. Again, he presses one into Nancy's hand, and then, before she can fully understand what is happening, hurls a stone directly at the old man. It hits him hard on the side of his face, near his ear, and he stumbles, swinging blindly into the side of the house as if for cover. And Nancy hears Deshane telling her to throw, and because she is a coward, and because she has always done the right thing, and because she loves Deshane's beauty, she runs forward a few steps and aims at the old man. The stone sweeps so cleanly and sharply that it unzips the shimmering air in its wake, revealing something hidden behind the heat and light, a cool green place, soft underfoot, swollen with water, obliterating the sight of the old man ducking to miss the stone, but instead missing the top step and falling down the stairs, thunk, 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 to the cement yard, where he lies without moving. She wants to describe to Shane the tang of unripe corn stalks, the metallic scent of wet earth, but he's tugging at her, saying, Come on, we gotta go. They drive a few streets over, to a battered two-story belonging to a friend. Sorry about the dog, he says, and then he is gone, without even asking for the twenty she promised. It is nighttime when Nancy finally jutters into Marie and Dexter's driveway. She's had to ask directions at a service station, a McDonald's drive-thru, a drugstore. Twice she was nearly rear-ended, once almost sideswiped by a two-ton pickup. Marie has called her cell phone eleven times. Still, Nancy stays there, in her car, in the dark, trying to find a weather forecast on the radio. Earlier, rain was predicted. She remembers it clearly. And this is what she hopes for now. The steady, wet pounding. The sudden expansion of green. She can smell it already, if she tries. And knows it will not be long. The beautiful storm. Special thanks as always to my co-producer Colleen Stewart, and thanks to you for slowing down and listening up with us today. Don't forget to check out our website, secondhandpodcast.com. Follow us on social media for updates. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune back in two weeks from now, and we'll have more secondhand stories for you. Thanks for listening, and happy writing. <laughs>